Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started today. It's 1230. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we're missing a few people, so if you see them next week, ridicule them and mock them and do all those nice Christian things that we do to <laughs> guilt them into ferment. No, um, we, today I don't have my video camera. Uh, it's at home because I'm doing uh, an art project, and so I'm voice recording today. So if you follow along on YouTube, It'll just have a graphic, or maybe I'll put McLean's smiling face up there, or something like that. <laughs> something to bring in the viewership. <clears throat> but we are in Exodus. We finished chapter 12 last week. And this is one of those cases where chapter divisions aren't always helpful, because chapter 13 is splits at a weird point, and chapter 14 splits at a weird point. And so we're kind of in a bridge section. Um, in between two events. Chapter 13, the first 16 verses are belong to what we read last week. They belong to the regulations that God was setting out related to the Passover. And if you remember, the Passover event was to establish in Israel a collective communal memory of this occasion of God bringing them out of Egypt. It was to it was to ingrain in them over the centuries some theological concepts in a way that made them look not only to the past, but also that made them look to the present and then on to the future in terms of how God was to lead them or what God was to do with them. So we're still in the Passover section, and I've said it before, you can't overstate the importance of Passover among the Jewish people. You know, among Christians, it's unknown. It's very rare to find Christians that have actually gone to a Passover Seder with Jewish friends or Jewish family. But it is the fundamental identifying event of the Jewish people. It's not Hanukkah, it's not Purim, it's not any of these other, it's Passover. Passover is the identity of the Jewish people. It is the celebration of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinai Covenant. So you couldn't be an Israelite and not do Passover. And if you didn't do Passover, you weren't an Israelite. It was that simple. So it's something that we as Christians, we want to explore, we want to look at, and we want to see that while we don't keep Passover anymore because we are in a new covenant, Jesus raised the glass at his last supper that was a Passover meal, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many. So he brought Passover to its full completion because he was the final Passover lamb and then he inaugurated the new covenant so while we stand on the other side of it and look and celebrate the new covenant when we look back at Passover we see things about God and about what he desires for his people that should help us in our celebration of new covenant membership and so that's how we do that's what we do with the Old Testament is we look at it not for rules to keep because we're not under the Old Covenant, not even the Ten Commandments. We're not under the Old Covenant anymore. But we look at those rules that God had them keep and see the type of God He was for them and the type of people He wanted them to be in their setting. And then we filter that through the event of Jesus and the cross and say, now in the New Covenant, how does that work? How do those principles that are enshrined in that apply to me in my everyday life. That's something that you have to do. It's an extra step you have to take in studying the Old Testament. It's why a lot of Christians don't study the Old Testament. Or worse, it's why a lot of Christians pick and choose from the Old Testament which laws they keep and which laws they don't keep. When the New Testament itself says it's all or nothing. 
you keep them all or you keep none. Uh, the law is the law. And so that's the approach that we have to take as we're reading these Passover regulations. So you need to hear and see and listen to and try to get back into the mindset of these people, this first generation. They have been slaves, their parents have been slaves, their parents' parents have been slaves all the way back at least four generations, if not more. 430 years total, the time that Israel was in Egypt as slaves. So they are at a, at a, at a turning point in their history. They are a new creation coming out of this nation. They're a rabble of former slaves who all they've known is slavery, all they've known is belonging to someone else. And at the beginning of the Exodus, God said He was going to bring Israel out of Egypt. Israel was God's firstborn son. That's the term that God uses to describe Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. And He was going to bring out His firstborn son from underneath Pharaoh. And it would ultimately, because of the stubbornness and the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, it would cost the Egyptians their firstborn son. So it's this collective um, individualism as a whole that God's working with. And so he's ingraining in Israel. He's going to let them know this concept after you're out of Egypt, it doesn't cease to apply. You don't stop being my firstborn son. And the idea of the firstborn as belonging to God doesn't stop once you're out of Egypt. You, the reason that your firstborn are alive is because I passed over those houses. And if those houses had not been covered by the blood, your firstborn would have been taken as well because I, the Lord, have the right to take all life as I see fit because I'm the only one who can give life as I see fit. So it's one of those areas where God is distinctly different from any human authority, any human judge, any human whims that we have is God is the one who can create life and God is the one who at his own choosing can take back life. And so this is for, for the Israelites and for us today, it's an uncomfortable truth. Uh, that we sometimes want to think of God as just a big version of us or a big version of an ideal person. And, and there are times when God does act in very human ways, but or it's because we are acting in little godly ways, if anything. But then there are also times when God is transcendent and he can do and say things that no one else has the authority to say or to do, including demanding the life of all the firstborn. And this was a known belief in the ancient world. This was the idea that the firstborn or the best of your flocks or your herds were something that you would devote to this gods to sacrifice in order to appease them. That was done throughout the ancient world. It wasn't something that had never been heard of. What God's going to introduce here is a twist on it that shows that he doesn't desire the taking of human life. He doesn't desire human sacrifice. He never has. He never will. And their only exception will be when he himself puts on human skin and comes as the sacrifice. So in chapter 13, which is picking up on the last part of chapter 12, it starts off saying, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. And that, I think in literally in Hebrew, it's the first that, that parts the womb. The first that comes out of the womb. So it's not like every firstborn son, if, if the woman has a daughter first, then it doesn't apply. It's, it's only if the one thing that comes out of the womb, whether man, whether human or whether uh, livestock in this case, the firstborn son is what's going to be required. 
And God's saying, consecrate to me, which means set apart to me. In animal terms, that means sacrifice to me as a sacrifice. And, and the, the ritual for sacrifices will come later in Leviticus. They'll tell them exactly how to do it. But the purpose of that was to be uh, not just a sacrifice in symbol, but then also after the sacrifice was made, then the family would eat that meal together. And the priests who performed it would get a portion of the meal as well. This is You have to remember that it's not like people were just wasting these animals. Animals were their livelihood. They dealt in animals the way we deal in our goods and services today. You know, their, the size of their herd was like the size of our checking account. So animals weren't, God wasn't just saying, you know, wastefulness. When God did command an animal to be wholly offered to him as a burnt offering, that was one thing. But sacrifices in general were the way that the Israelites got their meat for their communal meals. Uh, it, was, it was sacrificial system was tied up in the feeding of the people and the celebration of their meal together. So there's so much involved. We talked about last time. There's so much centered around eating in the Old Testament, including how they worshiped. You know, that's why early communion in Christian churches was called a love feast. It was a meal, not a little cracker dipped in juice, as we've done it today, but a meal. So this is all, this is what's the theme of this last chapter and this part of the chapter is this notion of food and eating together in celebration and remembrance. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. We talked about that in the last section. We saw that last week. Yeast was, in this case, symbolic of, of uh, a number of things. It could be a symbol for good or evil, but the characteristic of yeast was that it permeated everything. You can have open yeast in a container, and it, the particles, the yeast, can go airborne and actually permeate dough in another part of the house. Uh, so it, yeast has this ability to get into things. You put a little bit in the dough, it works its way through, the bread rises, and it's delicious. Um, but what God's saying in this for this purpose is you're going to clean out, you're going to get rid of all yeast, because for these seven days, I want you eating excuse me, unleavened bread, what we call today matzah. If you're in the Jewish section or the, the kosher section at the grocery store, the box that says matzah, that's what this is talking about. They're like big saltine crackers without the salt. So think about that when you're thinking about what God's saying here. Um, eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Abib, and this was the first month of the year for the Canaanites, which is where Israel was going. It wasn't the first month of the year for Israel before this point, but now God's making it the, the height of the year. In the month of Abib, you are uh, leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, that's Genesis 15, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. And here's the ceremony. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. That's the Passover meal. So seven days, and then at the end, the big Passover festival. Uh, eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. 
for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. So not whenever you want to, not anytime you're feeling nostalgic, but on this day in the month of Abib, when I brought you out of Egypt, you're going to commemorate this every year. And you're going to do it so that you can teach your children who they are why they do this thing where they have to not eat yeast for seven days and, and only eat these cracker things and then there's a meal at the end. What's the purpose of all this? It's teaching. And it's teaching in an era before there was Google or Wikipedia or the World Book Encyclopedia, for those of you that remember that, or any of those things. This is how you communicate information. This is how you convey information in an, in an ancient pastoral society is you do things that give it a tactile feel. If you have ever eaten matzah, you know that eating that for seven days instead of regular bread would be a change. And there are ways to make matzah better. You know, you can put peanut butter on it, and some people do little fruit toppings and things, but it's still, at the end of the day, a pretty stale cracker. That's what it tastes like. So for seven days, you're eating that. It's, it's, it's putting Israel's community back in the events of the Exodus back in the events of having to eat on the road because they are leaving exile in Egypt and wandering into this world, into the unknown, having to go through a wilderness. So it's, it's a very tactile way of doing it. It incorporates all the senses, the sights, the smells, the taste, the touch. It's much more than just what we think of as a memorial. You know, even, even in our day, memorials don't really have much meaning. You know, Memorial Day, what do you do? You barbecue and that's about it. Like there's no, there's no ritual. And that's something that in the Old Testament, God was huge on ritual, not for ritual's sake and not because it was magic, not because God needed it, but because we needed it. People needed to be reminded. People needed to engage in all of their senses, sight, smells, taste. All of that was brought into being because God was the God who created everything. Somewhere along the way in our culture, in our church, we were influenced by Greco-Roman ideas and Gnostic ideas that taught that the body and the earth, like Plato taught, that's eh, just a shell. What really counts is the spirit and the spiritual and the mind. So as long as we're thinking about good things and as long as our minds are in the right place, what we do with our body doesn't really matter. It's just going to rot anyway and our soul will fly free into heaven forever. That is heresy. That is biblical heresy. It's nowhere in the Old or the New Testaments. Biblical faith was always grounded in this world and not God taking us out of this world, but God returning and renewing this world and cleansing it from the corruption that sin brought about from it. So all of the things that God's going to command his people to do in the Old Testament that seem so weird to us, they were all part of that worldview that said this earthliness, as even as bad as this world is, even as fallen as this world is, even as sinful as this world is, it's still the good creation God created. And he still wants it back. And so we need to celebrate in ways that lift up and exalt the bodily aspect of who we are, the physicality, the earthiness, the smells and the tastes and the sights and all of those things. So when you're looking at Old Testament uh, ceremonies, that's part of what goes into all of it. You know, we think of today when we'll talk about this next section, um, Consecrating the animal, it says, after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, again, harkening back to Genesis 15, 
you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Just like all the first fruits of the harvest are going to belong to God. Just like all, this, this is similar to the concept of the tithe. The first part belongs to God. It's not like you give it to God as, as something good that you did. It's like, no, God's saying it belongs to me already. I'm entrusting you with all of this and, and, and knowing or, or, or requiring that you give me back the first part as a show of your faith in me. Do you trust me to give you what you need with that other nine tenths enough to give me that first tenth? Now for us, it's not a big deal. We write a check, beginning of each month, we've tithed. But in, the, in, in ancient Israel, you weren't assured that the full harvest or the full crops would come in. You aren't assured that the animals will continue to give birth to more offspring. You're not assured of any of those things. So the giving of the first male offspring as a sacrifice to God among your sheep or among your flocks, that was a big deal. It was significant. It required, it was truly a sacrifice in the real sense of the term. You were sacrificing your livelihood to a large degree on this concept that God already owned it all and is putting this before you as a way for you to express your testimony, excuse me, to express your covenant faith in his provisions. And so that's the type of giving that was in the Old Testament that was sacrificial. That was the purpose of it. It was supposed to be a sacrifice. It was supposed to be an act of faith. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus is standing in the temple with his disciples and all of these people are coming and they're bringing their gifts and the rich people are bringing and they're giving huge amounts of money to the temple. You know, it'd be like a billionaire walking in and just writing a $100,000 check to me, to my ministry. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I would be ecstatic. Uh, I'm happy with 10 bucks. 100,000 would just blow me away. But then this woman comes in, Jesus sees a widow and she gives two little coins, two little, not even the full uh, the denomination amount that they use, just two little mites, two little pennies so to speak. And Jesus points to the disciples and says, see that? They're like, what? All these people giving all this money? He's like, nope. She gave more than all of them. Why? Because she gave sacrificially. It cost her that. And she gave that to the Lord as an act of faith. She didn't sow her seed for a blessing. None, don't twist it into some prosperity heresy. She gave as an act of faith and love for God, trusting that he would provide for her, even if he didn't give her back money, he would provide for her somehow. And Jesus says that's more than any of these millionaires giving from their vast sums of money. So all of these principles, they get elaborated in the New Testament, but they begin here in the Old Testament. And we're seeing the heart of God. We're seeing the type of God he is. So God says all of the first of your livestock um, belong to the Lord. Redeem with, and he, then he makes an exception. He says, redeem with the lamb every firstborn donkey. Now, why are donkeys an exception? Well, donkeys were the cars of the Old Testament. You rode on a donkey. Uh, it, horses wouldn't come until later. This is Israel moving from Egypt up to Canaan. And in between, camels weren't around very often. That's a, kind of a stereotype. Camels weren't that prevalent in this part of the world at this time. Um, you know, you didn't breed camels. You didn't breed horses but you would breed donkeys because those were your means of conveyance. That was your transportation. However, donkeys were not fit sacrificial animals. Later in Leviticus, God will say, these are the animals that are you're to sacrifice. These are the sacrificially, the ritually clean animals. And donkeys were among the animals that weren't. 
So what's God, so what God puts in place is you can't sacrifice a donkey because sacrifice means giving of, of what God has asked for, which are these ritual clean animals. And donkeys aren't. They're just everyday beasts of burden. So you can't sacrifice a donkey to the Lord. However, God doesn't want God wants them to know that He's serious about this firstborn ownership thing. So what He says is, you something has to be sacrificed. So sacrifice a lamb, it can stand in the place of the donkey. And it will stand in the place of your firstborn son as well. I'll say that in a second because that, He doesn't want human sacrifice. So He'll say a lamb can be put in place. A lamb can be substituted and the lamb can die instead of the, per, the, the firstborn son or even in this case the donkey dying. So He's putting in place the specific uh, allowance of a substitution. And then there's this weird part at the end of it that says if um, uh, redeem of the lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you don't redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. So it's like, whoa, where's that break its neck come from? Um, that verb is, is the, literally the verb means neck it. Like it's the phrase neck as a verb, neck it. And the NIV translates it as break its neck or because it's related to words in other languages that mean like to cut into pieces or to shatter or it's a guess. But it, what it means is it's a form of, of, of killing an animal that's not a sacrificial killing an animal. The slitting of the throat and the cutting the entrails and dividing the portions and putting this here and this, that's how you would ritualistically put an animal to death for a sacrifice. What this is saying is basically it's saying you have to kill it. If you're not going to redeem it with a lamb, you can't keep it for yourself because it belongs to God. So either redeem it with a lamb and then it can live and you can use it and it's your beast of burden or put it to death but not as a sacrifice. In other words, you don't get to keep it just because it's Levitically unclean. So it's this weird thing that God's doing and, and we have to look at it and say, How, what, what did we see in this? What is this telling us? And what it's showing is the concept, the, the, uh, the idea is that God's saying, the firstborn belong to me, not to you. And if you're not going to sacrifice it to me, if you're not going to consecrate it, if you're not going to redeem it, and this is where that term redeem comes from that we use all throughout theology to redeem, means to buy back something from ownership of another. If you're not going to redeem it, you can't keep it and use it for yourself. And that's the, that's the thrust of what God's saying here in this section that for us is really weird and strange. So he goes on to say uh, in verse 14, in the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? You know, in other words, why do we have to do this with the firstborn, Dad? Why are we sacrificing the firstborn to God? Say to him, because with a mighty hand, Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. Ah, oh, there's the link. Remember, when the plague came through, it wasn't just the firstborn of the people that died. It was also of their livestock as well. God was showing in principle He is the owner and the author of all life and can claim the life of the firstborn. So this is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and like a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So the idea is, and, and this, the people have taken this in, <clears throat> in Jewish tradition, they take this literally, and you'll see people praying. If you ever go to the Western Wall or even in synagogues, they have something, this thing, leather thing wrapped around their arm and it's got a box on it. And then this thing on their head that's like a box and it sits here and they pray with that and with this. Those are called phylacteries or in Hebrew they're called tefillin. 
and they come from this passage. Tie it on your arm and on your forehead. And it's a, it's, God's using it symbolically, but they take it literally, and they have these little boxes, and in them there are portions of the Torah, and they literally wear them on their head and on their uh, arm when they pray. This is where it's coming from. But what it means is not wrap boxes with verses around your arm. What it means is this who you are as a people, this law, this Torah, this, this covenant that you're about to enter with me, it needs to be on your mind constantly, and it needs to be in what you do with your hands. It needs to be on your head and on your hands. What you do, what you work for, what you produce, and also what you think about, what makes up who you are. So it's a way of God saying intimately, I'm giving you your identity. And it's all going to be wrapped up in the fact that you are my firstborn and I am the Lord of all the firstborn because I am the sovereign Lord. And there will be this will be filled out in later passages, later in Exodus and particularly in Leviticus and in Numbers as well. Um, but this is what's going on at this point, um, what we're seeing. Last section that we'll look at, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, and NIV says armed for battle, and that's just simply not a correct translation. It says literally they went up out of Egypt in 50s or by 50s. It's a military term. It means marching in formation by 50 across or in groups of 50 or what we would say in squads. But there's nothing about being armed for battle. This is where NIV just makes a jump that's unnecessary. But the point is definitely it's battle imagery. It's army imagery. God is saying, this is my army, even if they don't realize it, even if they would see an army, a real army, and they would get scared and want to run back to Egypt, they're still my army but I'm not going to take them right into battle yet. One, because the Philistines aren't the people that God wants judged. If you read Genesis 15, Philistines aren't included in that people of Canaan. Two, because God's not going to push them right into something as traumatic as battle after coming right out of something as traumatic as slavery. So there's a mercy in here. And so what God's going to do, instead of taking them, so if this is Egypt, and this is uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and this is modern Israel up here, right? Red Sea down here. Instead of taking them on the direct route, which would take like 10 days at most, he's going to take them, he's actually going to take them down across the Sinai Peninsula, the big triangle peninsula. He's going to take them across the Sinai, and then he's going to have them wander in there for a few days, and then he's going to bring them to the Red Sea, which is down at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, not the bottom, but like midway through. I'll bring a map next time so you can see because it helps. But he'll take them right there. That's how he's going to bring them out of Egypt. Um, armed for battle, so to speak. Last point, verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. If you're just joining us and haven't been through our study when we did Genesis, you may wonder what's going on in the who's Joseph or if you know Joseph, what does that have to do with anything? Joseph is the ancestor uh, the patriarch. He was the one who was responsible for Israel going down into Egypt to begin with and being preserved there. And he said at the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, when he was dying, Joseph said, hey, one day God's going to bring us out of this country. 
because he promised our ancestors Canaan. And when he does, don't leave me here in Egypt. And so he had his bones, he had himself embalmed, and, and he said, take my bones and bury them with our fathers in Canaan, in the tomb of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So there was a hope, even in the Old Testament, that death itself wouldn't put an end to God's plan for his covenant people and for their inheriting of the land. Even Joseph hoped in the concept of resurrection, that he would rise, Abraham would rise, Jacob, that they would all rise one day in this land that God had promised. So that's what we see in here, and that's how they end. So Israel's marching out. They're marching out as an army. They're marching out triumphantly. They're marching out with the bones of their ancestor who brought them there in the first place. They are ready to go. It's, it's looking like a straight shot. And God's going to introduce one last little bit into things uh, before the freedom is truly complete. But we're out of time today, so we'll have to talk about that next week. So take care.